Welcome back to the MicroConf podcast. This is a MicroConf refresh episode with an amazing talk from Jordan Gall. He gave it in Portland at our MicroConf local Portland just about two and a half months ago. The talk is titled Reflection on Bootstrapping Cart Hook with Jordan Gall. If you don't know Jordan, he's co-host of the Bootstrap Web Podcast. He's the co-founder of Rally and Carthook. These are two SaaS apps that operate in the e-commerce space. During his time building Carthook, he learned hard lessons about building on an existing platform, challenges to overcome bootstrapping, and how to implement those lessons into his and your next business. Jordan always delivers when he's on the microconf stage, and this was no exception. I think you're going to really enjoy this talk from him. If you do, it'd be amazing if you could tweet him out at Jordan Gall, G-A-L, and let him know you heard his talk on the at microconf podcast. Let's dive in. All right. Welcome to Portland. As a resident, everyone who's coming in from out of town, welcome. And everyone who is a Portland resident, you should know that a bunch of us get together for regular lunches. Uh, if you want to be part of that, Adam right over there can take your info, add you to the Portland microconf Slack and then you could start attending lunches with us, which has been fun. I would say my friend group in Portland is basically that lunch. <laughs> yeah. Also, thank you to Rob and Tiny Seed and the whole MicroConf organization for putting this on and for having us and for having me speak. Okay. We're going to keep this nice and cat. We're going to have fun. I have a few slides here. I have a bunch of stories that go along with the slides. The topic is what would you do differently? And that'll make more sense in just a second. But let me just ask the room, how many people are on their first venture? Okay. And how many people are on like their second, third? And how many of us are like 10 plus? Like a road of failure behind us. <laughs> Domain names, lost LLCs. Oh, yes. Okay. So what I'll be talking about today is what I would do differently if I were able to start over. And like I said before, that'll make more sense in a sec. But first, a great microconf tradition right here. This is my why. This is my family. That's my wife, Regan. We met on a blind date in college. We've been together a very long time. And our three daughters, Malin, Marlo, Daphne. For me, that's my why. What we do during the day at work is important. And this is much more important. Okay. Card hook. This is a company I started in 2015. And I want to tell a quick version of the story. It could take three hours if I told the whole thing. <laughs> Rob got to watch the whole thing. So it's a company I started in 2015. And I'll just tell a quick version of the story on what we did and what happened. And that'll lead into the point of the talk. 2015 is after I sold my e-commerce business. I used to be a merchant, sell like niche products online, like hammocks, and solar lights, basically anything that was difficult to find offline. So I sold that business and I want to get into software. So I'm a non-technical person. And so what I do is I find actually a family friend by coincidence. And what we do is we recreate an app that I used to use as a merchant, but that was a terrible piece of software, but it made me money every month and I, never, I was never going to cancel it. So I figured, you know what I'll do? I'll build a better version of that and then no one will cancel. So Cardhook launched as a cart abandonment app. Uh, I'm sure everyone has gotten those emails that say, hey, you left this item in your cart, why don't you come back and buy it? So that's all the product did. Very specific, capture the email address from the checkout page. If they don't complete the purchase, send them an email campaign designed to bring them back. 
So that was a recreation of an app that I used, and that's how Carthook launched. About six months in, it was starting to go, it was maybe a thousand bucks a month or so, and my co-founder, Charlie, who was the person that built it, gets his dream job offer, a, a ridiculous robotics company funded by Andreessen Horowitz. So it's, you got to take the dream job. I wasn't even working on it full time. So he took it and I got left alone for a few months until holidays in 2014, maybe, or 15. I go to New York and I visit my family and friends and I end up hanging out with a bunch of my college buddies who went into finance and made a lot more money than all of us. And in my conversations with them, I bring up the fact that somebody just made an acquisition offer. And it felt too early. It didn't make sense. But in, this, in these conversations, my friends would basically say, look, it's too early, but it sounds like you have a cool thing going. I'll throw in a few bucks if you want to keep going. So I say, all right, I'm a bootstrapper. If the money's right there, maybe it makes sense to do it. So as a non-technical founder, what do you need to do for a software company? You do need someone to run the product. So I go searching for someone and I find someone. A uh, person named Ben Fisher, this great guy out in New York, and we team up. So I bring some of my friends and family. He brings some of his friends and mentors. And we raised 275000 bucks. It was Rob and Sherry's first or early or angel investments. That's right. So we get started in earnest, and we start really building out a team and going for it. It's, it grows, but not great. It gets to 5K MRR, it gets to 8K, but it is not smooth. It's not easy. And the way we were going about it was we would do an integration with an e-commerce platform, and then we would market to that platform's users. More about that later. And we had integrations with Volusion and WooCommerce and CrateJoy and a bunch of others. And everyone kept telling us, you got to go to Shopify. That's where all the action is. But Shopify didn't let us put our JavaScript on their checkout page. And that was our magic. Our magic was that we were able to capture the email on the blur event as soon as the shopper tapped out of the field. And that was important because we grabbed the email address earlier than other options in our like competitive market. Usually it was reserved for the higher end, more expensive products that were able to do that. So we didn't want to go to Shopify because that kind of took away our magic, but eventually the demand got there and we said, fine, let's do it. So we go to do an integration with Shopify, basically staring at the Shopify checkout page for weeks. And something inside me starts to formulate a new idea. That my e-commerce company that I ran with my brothers, I was the one responsible for conversion. So one of my brothers was get the traffic, I convert, and the other brother's post-purchase, like delivery and fulfillment customer service. So in my time as an e-commerce merchant, I spent a lot of my time optimizing our site learning about optimization, and I ended up spending a lot of time on the checkout page on how to build trust, how to add trust symbols, how to make the process faster, smoother, credit card symbols, alternative payment methods. So I became an expert in this. Here I was staring at the Shopify checkout page every day and realizing you can't do anything here. You can't change the colors. You can't add trust symbols. You can't add anything. And so we built the card abandonment integration, but in my head, I started to formulate, I think I have a better idea. I think there's going to be a lot of demand for Shopify merchants that want to customize their checkout. So I put that idea in the back of my mind and I start my detective work. Eventually, I find a developer advocate at Shopify on LinkedIn and I get them on the phone and I give, here's my idea. What do you think? He said, well, you can't do that right now, but 
we have a checkout API coming out. No one knows about it yet, but it's a checkout API. And what it allows you to do is put charges through the Shopify payment processing system from outside of the platform. Well, that's interesting in my head that what that means is we can build a presentation layer hosted in our app, a checkout page, and then use their checkout API to put the payments through them so that they're not losing any money, that we're still processing through them. So I take this back to the team. It's four of us at this point. We're probably at about 10 or 12K in MRR. And I say, guys, I have an idea. <laughs> I think maybe we should build a second product. We, we have an idea. I know it's valuable because I used to do it back when I was a merchant. And I'm seeing a lot of people talk about this sort of thing in Facebook groups. And now we have a little bit of an advantage. I found out about this checkout that no one knows about. So maybe we should do it. So at, at that point in time, we have about 100K in the bank. We're not profitable and there are four of us. So this is a bet the farm moment. If you're going to do this, you're risking it. And if it doesn't work out, then the company's probably not going to work out. But we decided to do it. So we start building. We work with some people at Shopify on this new API. We build this product and we think we're onto something. So we get ready after a few months of building to launch it into the app store. And we are taking bets <laughs> internally. How many signups are we going to get in the first 30 days? And the numbers are like 500, like 800. We're optimistic. So we submit the app. And we wait and we're getting ready to see who's right on in their bets. And unfortunately, what comes back to us is an email saying, you can't launch this app. Not so that's a problem. That is bet the farm and the farm is not, is not look the, the future of the farm is not looking good right now. So I went pretty dark. I thought, oh shit, I lost the whole thing. I lost our investors money. I screwed the company up, I led people in the wrong direction and that's my responsibility. So for a few days, I'm walking around my neighborhood during the day and I'm in a dark place thinking, okay, I, sc I screwed this whole thing up. At least we have this other app, but we're gonna run out of money before we can make that profitable. And now we're in the shit. A few days later, I'm at the grocery store and I can remember this like perfectly clear. <laughs> I get a text message from Ben, co-founder. And in the text message is a screenshot from a message board in the e-commerce world. And in that screenshot is a, another screenshot of someone's app that does the same thing as our checkout app. And the person is talking about, hey, get ready, we're about to launch it. And he sounds very confident. <laughs> I am not in a confident place because I just got taken out. So first I go from dark to all of a sudden now I'm red. I'm furious because I know the person in that screenshot talking about it has direct personal connections with the leadership at Shopify. So I get mad. It doesn't feel fair. Once my anger subsides a little bit, I realize this is an opportunity. So what I do is I write probably the most important email of my life. And I email everybody. I email CEO, COO, CTO, VP partners, like basically everybody I could think of. And I write this email that basically says, this can't stand. This level of unfairness is just not okay. What I get back is, give us a week. And after a week, what they come back with is, 
you can't do it the way you planned on. You can't be in the app store, but if you switch to the orders API and you do the payment processing yourselves, you can keep doing it, but you can't be in the app store. So to us, A, it doesn't make sense because now you, they want us to take the payments in our platform instead of theirs, which costs them money. So that doesn't make that much sense to me. But the important thing is they said you could do it, just not in the app store. So we lose the distribution of the app store, obviously painful, but at least we're alive. So we say, yes, of course. So we rewrite the product in the new way with the orders API instead of the checkout API. And we very quietly launch it. And everyone here knows that the, the last thing you should do with your software product is approach it with a, if you build it, they will come type of a mindset. But that is what we did. It just so happened that we were very right. And as soon as this thing launched, just overwhelming demand. People talking about it. It was one of the best experiences of my life to be doing demos with people and have them just could not believe what we had built. It was exactly what they wanted. People were like texting their friends to jump on the demo together and like freaking out together. I can't believe these guys built this app. This is exactly what's needed. So it felt like, all right, we're clearly on the right track. First year, $100 million in processing. So we go from the 10K MRR that we were with the one product to 80K in MRR in that first year. It was a messy year. <laughs> it was difficult. We didn't really realize the nature of the product and how sensitive a checkout is and so on. But it's the dream. That's what we all want. Product market fit, one of those things that when you see it, that it was, that was it, that it felt like it. The next year we go from 80 MRR to 200. After that, we go from 200 to 500K MRR. Just everything that I've been working for years and everything that all of us kind of hope when we launch a product. See, I'm doing the time. Okay. Sounds great. And I wish, trust me, I wish I could tell you that the whole thing ended beautifully and now I'm having trouble walking because my wallet's so heavy. But that's not what happened. Because a year ago, really a year ago, September 1st of last year, Cardhook stopped taking on new customers. So Shopify basically came to us and said, party's over. Can't do it anymore. We changed our mind. You need to do it this other way. We're cutting off all of these checkout apps. And we're bringing all the payment processing back home. So if you go to cardhook.com right now, what you'll see is a, an upsell app. And the post-purchase upsells, that was our most popular feature. And the biggest reason people switched our checkout over theirs. So the deal with Shopify was you have to stop taking on new customers to the checkout. And in exchange, we'll work with you to build a post-purchase offer app that works inside the Shopify checkout. And what can I tell you? It's not the outcome I wanted, but it's not terrible. And the company is still profitable and healthy and happy. And there's 20 or so people there that are doing an amazing job. But I knew once that deal happened, that the responsible thing was to sign the deal, make sure the app gets launched into the app store. But once that happened, I knew that was no longer the place for me because my, I had soured on working in that way with Shopify and I needed to go do something on my own. So I put a CEO in place, Emily, who was on our team for a long time. And she's fantastic and she's doing a good job. So when I say, what would you do differently? This is like a real example. <laughs> what I'm doing right now, 
because I started a new company. It's in a similar space. It's in e-commerce. It's actually a checkout solution, but it's for everybody outside of Shopify for traditional platforms, for the headless ecosystem, and we give people a checkout suite to be able to do whatever they want. So if I were to ask you what you think the first thing I would do differently, what would your guess be? <laughs> Anyone? Get away from the platform. <laughs> so show of hands here, who considers themselves to be working on a platform? I'm surprised that it's that few. I, I would assume it's 50% or more. Obviously, everyone has a boss one way or another. If you have an iOS app, you have Apple as your platform. You have AWS. Everyone's on a platform in one degree or another, but a lot of people are on uh, platforms more directly in that way. So the thing about platforms is that the distribution is great. You have app stores, you have ecosystems, you have communities, and that is great. But the danger of it is the dependence. And so the ideal is to be the platform, that the power accrues to the platform. So ideally, that's you. That's a difficult thing to do and usually requires money and luck and resources and luck. But if you can't be the platform like most of us can, then my approach and what I recommend is to use the platform for growth and for that distribution, but you have to have a plan to go beyond a single point of failure for your entire. In e-commerce, the classic example is Klaviyo. Everyone familiar with Klaviyo, the email marketing company? Extremely successful. What they did is they launched in Shopify and grew and then expanded as quickly as possible. And now their revenue is less than 50% from Shopify. So they are in a much healthier place. Other companies have a lot of difficulty doing it because they, Carduck is an example, our product really molded itself to the needs of one platform. And then you're not only dependent in terms of your revenue, but your product is stuck in one platform. And that's a dangerous place to be. What we're doing at Rally is a bit of a hybrid. We are working with traditional platforms like BigCommerce and WooCommerce and Salesforce, but we're also working in the headless ecosystem that doesn't rely on big platforms as their central player. And when it comes to the product itself, we did not dare build according to one company's API. We built a connector system so that our API stays pristine. And then we worked with an agency actually, on purpose an agency and not hiring internally to make sure that an outside party would force our API to be good enough to build on. And now we have a connector system. So with Salesforce, our API stays as it is but we have a Salesforce connector that translates. And the same thing with BigCommerce and Swell and Sailor and WooCommerce and so on. This is like anathema. <laughs> so I'm being honest in terms of what I did differently, right? This time I raised money. At Cardhook, we were doing what I consider to be the ideal, which is to thread the needle. Uh, tiny seed is what helps you thread the needle. What that means is you raise just enough to get off the ground and get some growth, but not so much that you are locked into one specific path of success. For me at Cardhook, I always, I had this one fear. I always, and I said it clearly every time someone invested so that they knew exactly what they were getting into and what my mindset was. And anytime we talked about legal docs, I was like, we could do whatever we want, but there's one thing I won't budge on. And that one thing is I will not give anyone a veto over an acquisition offer. Because my nightmare was 
someone comes along and offers me life-changing money for me and my family, and then some investor says, eh, ROI is not good enough. No. Because to me, then I'm not working for myself anymore. I'm working for the investor, and, and I want to avoid that. So threading the needle and taking money from tiny seed, and a, there, there are a lot more options these days. There are more angel investors. There are funds that take these different approaches. That is the way I would recommend. That's not the way I went for Rally because I didn't think it made sense to go that way. But raising just enough to grow, what that allows you to do is it, it allows you the freedom to take the acquisition offer when it comes. And we almost got there with Garden. We were heading in that direction, but it didn't work out that way. So with Rally, I raised money. And I raised from VC right away, and I raised $6 million in a seed round. A very different experience. One of the things that's unexpected is there are some benefits to the VC thing that, that I looked at it very skeptically. But there are a few things. First, it's fun. I have a team of 16 people, and we haven't launched a product yet and don't have any revenue. I have a chief of staff. It's, it's easier in many ways. It's a different experience. And that's fun also. But obviously, fun is not the primary benefit. The primary benefit, at least for me, is that you can take whatever you're doing and pursue the absolute most ambitious version of it. And that's a very different mindset from what I had at Carduck because I always, the limitations were always top of mind. Even if I'd like to do this, I can't because of the amount of money in the bank and whatever set of realities. This removes those constraints. And yes, it has bad side effects at times, but there's also something to that. There is merit to being very ambitious because we get one life and sometimes you may as well go for it. So that's, for me, that's the primary benefit of VC. The other thing, going from a bootstrap founder to, or fundstrap, whatever you call it, to VC, it took me a little while to understand the game. As an outsider looking in, a lot of it doesn't make any sense. You see a company that raised 10 million bucks at, I don't know, $50 million valuation. And then six months later, they raised $40 million at a $250 million valuation. And it makes no sense. There's no way your company valuation went from 50 to 250 in six months. So what is going on there? So from the outside, it can look like it makes no sense. But understanding that game and the, the dynamics behind it was very important for me. And if you're going to play a game, you may as well know the rules. The quick version of it is everyone's aligned in the same direction. If the VC that invested at, what was the example, 50 million? Let's just call it 50 million in that first round. That company goes on six months later to raise at 250. That investor at 50 goes into their book and says, I'm up 5X on this investment. So they are very interested in you raising more money at a much higher valuation. The founder's equity goes from being worth, I don't know, 10 million to 50 million. So the founder's very interested in it also. And then the fund that investing at 250, their plan is, well, how do we get this thing to 500 or more in the next few months? So there's like this escalator of valuation going straight up and everyone along the way is very incentivized for it to keep going. So that might not make sense, but if that's the game, you may as well know the rules and try to Use it to whatever advantage you can to get your company in a position to be as successful as possible. Okay, my very quick advice on funding, if you're going to do this, I think this goes with angels or funds or VC or anything. That, oh, look at me, I'm good on time. That advice is stack all the combos to create authentic FOMO. So in investing, 
everything's FOMO and everything is who else is investing and what are you doing and am I going to miss out? And so at Cardhook, I made the mistake of having these very rolling fundraising experiences. And I would leave the note open for a year. And sometimes they would like, every few months, I'd bump into someone at MicroConf in Las Vegas and sit next to them uh, at a dinner and then get on the phone with them. And a month later, they would invest. So that was like one way to do it. That was not the good way to do it. <laughs> the right way to do it is to stack like 40 conversations in two weeks, because what that does is it creates authentic FOMO. Instead of pretending, oh, you're going to miss out, you could just be your authentic self and in the conversation, it is true that the person you're talking to mentions a different fund and you say, I just talked to them two days ago. Isn't that interesting? And that is an authentic version of, of FOMO because you are stacking. Ideally, you do it at a time where you are maximally confident. Something just happened. Something good just happened. And that's when you go out. And yes, that's my recommendation. Okay, last thing. Don't make excuses. I know it's annoying. My competitors have raised a $20 million Series A before launching a product and then a $100 million Series B with no traction at all. The other competitor raised $215 million and is about to close on a $333 million round. No one cares. I, I have no excuses. I'm a founder and I have to figure it out. It's the same thing for anyone else in this room, whether your competitors are huge or small or annoying or incredible. It doesn't matter. Don't make the excuses. Okay. Another thing that we're doing differently with Rally is we're launching. At Cardhook, we did that thing where we just kind of put it out there and told a few people. I don't think that's very smart, at least not, not, not this time around. This time around, we're leading with ideas. We are launching a set of blog posts that define what we're doing and why and who we are. And that's trying to set the tone by going ideas first. A lot of our competitors are very hype first. We don't want to do that. We want to go ideas first. But... What, what that can do for you is that kicks things off and then you can use that. For us, we're using a funding announcement. If you don't have a funding announcement, maybe you just have a, a product being launched, maybe you use Product Hunt or whatever variety of PR or press or attention you can get, we're using that in order to attract our initial early access users. So we raised our seed run a long time ago, months and months ago, but we haven't announced until now we're ready for early access merchants and the product's ready to take them on. And so we launch the content with the PR and that gets the attention. And the point is to get attention from prospects, partners, and investors. So those are our three audiences. And so we're maximizing that by launching in a way that stacks as much as possible in a short period of time. And then you can parlay that attention into what you need. Maybe it's investment, maybe it's early access users, maybe it's your first cohort of, of people. And the leading with the ideas, the point of that is to attract the true believers, the people that read what you're writing and say, I agree with that. Uh, some people will wait. Most people will wait until their friends tell them about your product and why it's so good. But the true believers is that's who you want early on. And if you lead with your ideas and say who you are and what you do and why, that's who you attract. Okay. One thing that really worked at Cardhook that we will absolutely be doing again uh, is building an inbound engine through integrations and partnerships. So if you think about our situation at Cardhook, we were never allowed in the App Store. The App Store is the normal channel distribution. Because we weren't allowed in there, we had to figure out a different way to grow. The way we found was through integrations and partnerships. And we ended up coming up with a process after doing it for a while that led into an inbound engine 
that we really did not do that much marketing at Cardhook. We did some paid ads, but the overwhelming majority of the growth came from inbound. And it is a very healthy thing for your company to have a significant level of inbound. It just makes everything steady. Even if the campaign you're working on doesn't work, you're still growing. Even if this ad campaign fails or if this new thing didn't go the way you wanted to, as long as there are people coming in on their own, you're okay. So my approach to integrations is to first identify the ideal. So what do I mean by that? I think a good example is Cardhook as a card abandonment app. So as a card abandonment app, you need to attach yourself to a platform. You need to say, where's the checkout page? And we'll put our JavaScript there and then we'll add value. We came across a platform called CrateJoy that was growing like gangbusters. It was an early team and they were running an e-commerce platform for subscriptions, right? Bacon of the month, coffee of the month, that type of thing. And it was just catching on and they were the first to do it. So they were growing so much that they didn't have time for anything. They were drowning. And I met the founder and made the pitch. I said, let's do an integration. I know people are asking you for it because Crate Joy merchants are coming to us saying, do you have an integration with Crate Joy? And so let us build it for you. In that case, our ideal worked out better than I could have expected. That is probably what led me to have higher expectations of the ideal. So what do I mean by that? Crate Joy was so desperate for it to just stop the support requests that they didn't want to build card abandonment that they took our product and built it directly into their admin. And so when you sign up as a new CrateJoy user, which was happening 100 times a day, they were getting new users. When you walked into the admin, one of the things you saw there was card, card abandonment. And you would click on that, go to our site, sign up for an account, and take your unique code, paste it in there, and you were done. So we built the code into their checkout page and the integration directly into their admin. That is what allowed us to survive while building a second product and ignoring the first. Because we went from 10K MRR to 20K MRR while not working on the product at all because Creature just kept sending us customers every day. So whenever I approach integration, I first identify what's the fantasy ideal. Right now we're working with big commerce. What's the fantasy ideal? That they just build us in completely. That you could use the big commerce checkout or the rally checkout and you just click a button and you switch. That ideal is not gonna happen anytime soon. But it's good to identify that and then start like working backwards. Okay, first, we're just going to build integration, hope that they tell their customers. And then we'll work up to do co-marketing. And then maybe we'll ask them if we could write a blog post. And then we'll just keep going toward the ideal. So the process, establish the relationship, ideally with the founder level. Then you do the technical integration. Then you find a few early customers. And then you take that success of the early customers. And that's what you market. So you either write a blog post about it, you write a case study about it, whatever, however close to the ideal you can get. If the platform or the partner that you're working with is willing to email their entire email list, that's closer to the ideal. If not, then your list or run paid ads to it or get attention to it some other way. And then the most important part is we just did this over and over and ever. Once you do it with 20 different companies, that's what creates the inbound engine because there are blog posts and emails and case studies just floating around the web. And these new companies are working very hard to attract new customers. And when those new customers come in, they get exposed to your product and they come in. Okay. Wouldn't be a microconf talk without this. How am I doing on time? Okay. Okay. So charging more. 
no bullshit. This saved our company, like, like, period, hands down. So here's what happened to us. First, when we launched the checkout product, we charged 99 bucks a month because that's what ClickFunnels was. And we were attracting a lot of ClickFunnels users that wanted to use Shopify with post-purchase offers that they lost if they left ClickFunnels and went to Shopify. So we figured 99 bucks, same thing as ClickFunnels. It's a good way to start. Remember what I told you though, as soon as we launched, overwhelming demand sounds cool, but if your product sucks and isn't ready yet, not that cool. So immediately what we did was, how do we slow this whole thing down? This is not sustainable. So after 30 days, we shut down the ability to sign up and we tripled the price. We said, that'll slow them down. Didn't slow down anything. Same demand, which was like, that was a, we had inadvertently stumbled upon a very big mistake that we made pricing and were able to fix it because we were desperate to chill everything out. So then our new pricing was at 300 bucks a month. And that's how we went for the first year. And that's part of why we were able to grow so quickly in the early days. So that was good until at some point I had to confront reality. Is anyone familiar with that formula? That formula is how you can come up with your maximum MRR, where your growth rate and your churn rate meet and they tell you together, you cannot grow beyond this because of the, those two factors. Easiest way to do it, your maximum number of customers is your acquisition rate divided by your churn percentage. If you're adding 100 customers a month and you're churning 3% a month, 100 divided by 0.03 equals 3,333 customers is the most you're ever going to get. Then if you take your maximum number of customers and you multiply it by your average revenue per user, call it 50 bucks times 33333, whatever, that is the maximum amount of MRR you will achieve, period. You, can, you will not grow beyond that unless you change some of these factors. So while on the outside, things looked great at Cardhook, we went from 100 to 250K MRR in a 12-month period. Sounds pretty good. But I knew inside that it was not going to work out because we were going to hit that ceiling pretty soon. Our churn was just too high. We were churning, I don't even want to admit, 10 12, 14% a month. So we were just papering over disaster with crazy growth. We would add 50K MRR in a month and lose 20K MRR in a month. And again, from the outside, you just gained 30K MRR in a month. You're awesome, aren't you? But inside, you got to confirm reality. So I had to do something. What I did was I took probably the biggest risk in the entire company other than building the second product. And that risk was to completely stop free trials. And when we did it, it was July of 2019, we were getting somewhere in the order of 400 trials a month for a $300 a month product. So 120K potential MRR signing up every month. Again, looks great, but underneath was not healthy. And the reason it wasn't healthy is because we were letting anyone in. And our product didn't serve everyone. Our product served a specific type of merchant with a specific fit technical fit, strategic fit, culture fit, revenue fit, all that combined into a certain type of merchant was just right for us, but not everybody. But our free trial system let everybody in. And because of that, so many people, not all, one bad thing is that people were disappointed and churned out. Even worse is I had this conversation with our support team. I just pulled them in. I was thinking about this stuff a lot and I pulled them into a room and I said, what percentage of your time is spent on merchants that will never become paying customers? And they said, easy 50%. So that's a disaster. So you have your team running 
tired, frustrated, spending their time on people that are not going to become paid customers. We're not going to add value to them. and They're not going to add value to us. So what we did is we decided to shut down free trials entirely and force a demo process. But not just that. We were also going to increase pricing a lot. We didn't just go from 300 a month to 500 a month. We also added a half a percent transaction fee, which is a lot if you're making $100,000 a month. So we raised prices and shut this down. And those first few months were so scary because we went from 400 new trials a month to zero and just demo requests and doing like 30 demos a month, which led into 15 actual new signups a month. So those first few months were tough to go through, but it changed the entire company. We went from 10, 12 plus percent monthly churn to 2% churn. And the prices went up on existing customers. We didn't leave pricing for existing customers at all. We gave them a few months. We said, we're going to let you through Q4, go through the shopping period. We're not going to try to like grab a bunch of money from you then. But in January, we're going to raise prices on you too. And the way we justified it was we wrote an email and said, here is our promise. These are the features we're going to add. These are the improvements we're going to make. You be the judge. In January, if we have achieved that to your satisfaction, stay and keep paying us at the higher rate. And if not, then rightfully go. Fortunately, we were able to pull that off and revenue increased dramatically in January. So that is what pulled us out of the, uh-oh, we're going to hit the ceiling to now there is no ceiling. Thank you, sir. We have time for two questions. Here's the first question. Assuming you feel more confident now about deploying the capital you've raised, what lasting things do you feel like you've learned on your entrepreneurial journey? So a, a, a lot, right? We covered a few of them here, but it's endless. But backing out a little bit to bigger picture, starting Cardhook, I went into it pretty coldly. The reason I left e-commerce and sold that business was because I didn't like the future of it, where you, if you don't spend another $20,000, $30,000 in advertising, your revenue goes to zero. And the reason for that is because it didn't have a recurring element. So I went into software for recurring revenue. That's it. And I wanted to make money. And that was okay when it was a team of four. And it stopped being okay very quickly afterward. Because once you start attracting other people to the business, you realize that's not enough. It's just not enough to work for. You can't have a group of 10 people, these people who are deciding to change their entire career path and come work at your company and have it just be about making you money. That's just not enough. And my problem that I had to confront is I didn't want to change that inauthentically. I didn't want to just slap a sticker that said, we're changing the world for the better and, and move on. So I had to find an authentic version of that. And I found that in both the customers and the employees. I looked at the customers and I said, we are genuinely making people's businesses healthier. And that leads into their families being better off and their kids and their communities. And we really connected with that. And then we looked at the employees and I said, I need to make a great company for these people to work at so that when they walk away from this, this isn't going to be their last job, but they look back on it and think it was a fantastic experience and they grew from it and they're better off for it. And so I have that at the start at Rally and that's injected into the culture from the beginning in an authentic way, as opposed to this wrestling with how to be authentic about it and then figuring that out. He's asking about, he's identifying two insights into the company. First, the product market fit with the product and what the market wanted. 
and secondarily, like the positioning and the pricing and, and that whole thing. The product itself, I'm okay with saying that I went with my gut. I think gut is underrated. I think everyone looks at data and data's cool, but nothing makes up for gut. And that was from an experience as a part of the market. And I felt like that's what I would want and that's where the market's going and I'm okay taking the risk and building it. So that part was gut. And I'm trying to do the same thing with Rally now. The other part was learned. The other part was, we have to figure this out. This is not gonna work out. It looks great from the outside, but this isn't gonna work out for us. And that's when I got to work on it. The pivotal moment for me was coming across an article by Lincoln Murphy, who's a customer success kind of guru. And he talked about uh, fit, like customer and company fit. And so what that, I looked at it, we used to look at it as revenue. If you're making over a certain amount of revenue, you're a good fit for our product. And that article and his teaching expanded that into a more sophisticated approach of, do they have the same integrations that we already have? Are they culturally, do we like working with them? Are they strategically a fit? Meaning, do they want to do this because it fits into their overall business? So when we started to develop that approach to it is when we identified, we're not for everybody. Let's identify who the best customers are and let's change our positioning on the site went from basically from make more money to give your customers a better experience. So one was gut and the other one was work. Th thank you for asking that. I wanted to fit something about this in, but I didn't know where to fit it in. So thank you for asking. The experience with Shopify is not unique. Maybe our version of it is a bit more dramatic than others' experience, but it is a regular thing to come across entrepreneurs, especially in our position, that are dealing with platform issues. And it is arguably in the nature of platforms to do this. There's a great article that I cite very regularly by Chris Dixon called Why Decentralization Matters. And that is the best articulation of the platform problem that I've come across. It talks about an S-curve going from cooperation to competition with an ecosystem. What happens in the beginning is there isn't that much economic opportunity, so everyone works together in this cooperative mode. And then it starts to grow and everyone basically parties on the way up. But at some point as the growth rate slows and the platform acquires an enormous amount of power, what ends up happening is they end up extracting from the ecosystem and it's, it's everywhere. It's Facebook, Twitter, Google, Shopify, any platform goes through this and open source tries to avoid it. What I'm most interested in is the Web3 version of open source to effectively try to avoid that top of the S-curve. I would recommend everyone in this room not sleep on Web3 and try to look through some of the cloudiness around crypto to look at the underlying tech and what's it's act what it's actually trying to do is very much what you're talking about. Uh, a, a future where the power does not accumulate to the center um, is one I'm in favor of. Thanks so much for watching Reflections on Bootstrapping Cart Hook with Jordan Gall. It's been great having you today. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. It'd be amazing if you could add mention us on Twitter or just reach out and let us know that you're listening. And we'll be back with another episode next week.